Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture, and I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen on the web that week. This week, I wrote about and covered the impeachment for the most part. My first column was about my pre-impeachment vote thoughts. This week started, as you remembered in the last episode, talking about the big three big votes that were this week, and impeachment was one of them. And so my first column that went out on Monday covered my thoughts pre-impeachment and just the foundation and the that impeachment sat on and how you could project move that off, off of that foundation moving forward. The second column I covered was after the impeachment vote, and I talk about how impeachment and withhold, that's it's the new theory being put forward by Democrats on how they can get leverage over Senate Republicans. I talk about how that's just a really dumb idea. It doesn't have any foundation in the text or spirit of the Constitution, and Democrats are just, it's a fake thing. There's nothing there that they can point to. We'll talk a little bit more about that in one of the sections today, and I have a column coming out tomorrow talking a little bit more about that. Also coming out this week was the newsletter where I covered what I got right and wrong on the topic of impeachment and just some analysis of things that changed the impeachment vote and how to look at that and just kind of what it tells you moving forward. So if any of that interests you now or after the show, you can sign up and get it all in your email inbox at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. It's the easiest way to get my columns analysis to you. That list isn't for sale, so you don't have to worry about any more spam. It's just about getting the links for this column, the columns that I send out, the newsletter, as well as the podcast. Finally, if you like what you hear here or enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews help listeners and readers like you find me in the iTunes algorithm, and I look forward to hearing from you in the comments. All right, let's jump in today's show. This week, I'm covering a follow-up to what we talked about last week. As I said at the top, we I highlighted three major votes that were happening this week. The USMCA, the trade deal between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. There was a vote on funding the government, since funding was up this week, as and also the big enchilada of the week, which was impeachment. So the House voted on all three of those things, so I'm going to talk about and touch on each one of them. The first two briefly, and then dig into what happened on the impeachment front and where that's going after this. And then I'm also going to talk about a viral story that happened sort of a culturally and more on the religion side involving Bethel Church in Redding, California, and people were sharing a lot of posts about Bethel and their call for people to pray with them, asking for the resurrection of a young child that had died in their congregation. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that and some of the blowback that I noticed just reading the comments from people on Facebook, Twitter, and elsewhere, as well as the national coverage. It was sort of an interesting thing to cover. And then we're going to end things talking about a thing called Trees for Troops. It's sort of a lighthearted thing as you head into Christmas and some of the cool things that people are doing to help our troops as we head into Christmas. All right. So with that, we're going to jump into the first big thing of this week, which is talking through the three big votes. So last week when I started, I said you could look at this week as just having these three big things. And it animated pretty much everything that was going to happen in politics for this week. They all sort of interlinked with each other, and they interplayed with each other because you needed the votes on the USMCA, the trade deal, and government funding in order to help Democratic moderates 
explain why they were voting for impeachment politically. And it gave them a little cover to go back to their districts and say, well, we thought Donald Trump had bad conduct, but we also work with him in these areas where we think these are good policies. So it's a way to sort of, that Pelosi knew she had to push through in order to get everyone on board. So the first major thing that I want to cover here is the spending bill that got passed through by the government. And as I said last week, the important thing wasn't really the amount that they were going to pass. This changes and goes up every year. And the reason that it does is that we're just passing spending resolutions. We're not in a budgetary order right now where Congress is setting a budget and sticking to it. We haven't really had a budget of any major kind since the downturn in the Great Recession in 2008 when we had to start passing all of the all the TARP, the bailouts, and everything else. And so we haven't had a normal budgetary order since then. Congress just keeps passing these spending resolutions, these resolutions that say, all right, we're going to keep the government funded with this amount for this period of time, and then we'll just revisit it at that time. And we're just passing these over and over again instead of actually passing a budget. So it's one of my great gripes about Congress right now. I would like to see it. And at this point, I don't even care the spending part of it. I just would like to see a return to a normal budgetary order where Congress debates and passes a budget, and then we go about and we actually have that for the year. That would be a nice thing to have, but we don't have that. So this spending bill that Congress passed keeps the government funded through September 30th, 2020, which means at some point in the general election, Trump and the Democrats and the minority party of the Republicans in the House, everybody's going to have to get together again at the height of an election and fund the government. And given the way that these things goes, they're not going to actually get around to this until right about just before the time that the government needs to be funded. So just before October, when the general election really heats up and you start seeing people, you know, start figuring out who they're going to go vote for, Congress is going to have to work with Trump in order to fund the government, and he's going to have this moment where he's going to sign a spending bill. Now, if they do what they typically do when they fund this to a point in September, all they're really going to do is pass a second one that's smaller that keeps the government funded again through December. So you're not going to see anything big and grand here. You're just going to see some basic funding to keep things open for another two to three months to get it past the election. But it's worth watching because if they don't get things done, you're left with a situation where the government isn't funded and you have a government shutdown in the middle of a general election. The odds of this happening are very small because no one, and I do mean no one, wants to deal with the blowback of a government shutdown in the middle of an election. It doesn't go well for anyone, and no one wants to take the blame right as we're going into an election. But if that does happen, you have the possibility here with that date. So it's worth watching because it'll be after all the conventions are over in July for both Democrats and Republicans, and it's also going to be just before the general election in November. So it's sort of in this interesting area where it will make the news cycle, and it will be a quasi-important thing depending on how they fight about it. So it's worth keeping on your calendar as just saying, okay, this is going to come up and they're going to have to fight about it in the middle of an election. Never a good place to be, but that's where they decided to park funding for this year. The second thing that happened was the trade deal 
with the United States, Mexico, and Canada, the USMCA. It passed the House. It's now waiting for approval in the Senate. It passed the House with a margin of 385 to 41. So that should tell you that even though everybody wants to try to stop Donald Trump and his agenda, when it came to this trade deal, the moderates in the party really needed it and really needed it to take back to their constituents and say, all right, we worked with him and we did this. So it's... As far as substance goes, from what I've read, it's not that much different than the current NAFTA. There are some minor tweaks here and there. There's some updating that involves more of the Internet. But it won't affect a lot of things overall. You'll just see a lot of these tariffs drop and things return largely to normal with some small differences here and there. NAFTA needed to be updated just because when it was first passed in the Clinton administration, it was something that passed over from the first Bush administration too. When Clinton finished it off and got it signed... It was pre-internet, and so all the e-commerce stuff we've seen pop up since then hasn't really been reflected in NAFTA, and before Trump, everybody largely agreed this needed updating, and it's gotten it now. So that's the good thing about this. Could there be some more things you could do in it? Sure. But having it reestablished and having all these rules apply will definitely help trade between the three countries and help boost economic production. So it's a good thing that it's passed. I suspect McConnell and the senators will also get it passed pretty easily as well. You may see some fights between with some of the Democrats in the Senate because they'll want to protect unions through this trade deal, but I suspect you won't see that many changes just because the moderates in the Senate want this as much as the moderates in the House, and so it should pass by a pretty easy margin there. So those are the two non-impeachment votes that are very important because if you're going to go and hit impeachment, you have to give the people who don't want to vote on impeachment at all, you have to give them something else to show that they're doing something while they're in Congress. So that was the USMCA and spending bill, and that explains why Pelosi used those two to sandwich in the impeachment vote that happened during this past week. So, the House passed an impeachment resolution. There are two articles to it. Pelosi only lost two Democrats as a part of this. I don't think that includes Van Drew, the the Democrat in New Jersey who switched parties. And so, you had a very few people who decided to break ranks. When I was watching Politico do some whip counts beforehand, they were thinking that some of the Democratic leadership was saying that between six to eight people might have in the Democratic Party might have voted against impeachment. But in the end, they only lost two. And one of the ones who voted for it, he just voted for one of the articles and voted against the other one. If I remember correctly, he voted for, for the articles that said that called Donald Trump's behavior an abuse of power and then voted against the one that said Trump was obstructing justice and not responding to the House subpoenas, which frankly makes a lot of sense when you think through it just substantively. The only one, as I've said over and over, the one that only one that has any meat to it is the abuse of power article. So... That actually made some sense. I don't think he's going to get any credit for that in his district because the thing that I pointed out in the newsletter that I missed just as part of my analysis and that people just sort of under overlooked when you're looking at why people are voting, why they voted, and it's primaries. And primaries are happening not just for Democrats on the presidential level. It's happening on the House and Senate level, too. So if you're a House Democrat and you just won your district and you're you're in the middle of your first term, you don't want to face a primary challenge because you decided to vote against impeachment. Because even if you think that it's a hard vote to make for a general election, if you vote against impeachment, you're going to 
you're going to get a primary challenge. Somebody's going to come at you from the left and say, well, you may be a Democrat, but you didn't vote to impeach Trump. And so you should have done that in that vote. And I'm going to run against you and run on that one issue because we need people in Congress to stand up to Trump. We need people in the Democratic Party to stand up to Trump. That's the pitch you would make in a primary. And so people decided to go with this vote and vote for impeachment because they didn't want to get into the primary season and say and face people on their own flanks and who were calling for impeachment. You don't want that. So that pressure, pressure hit them, and it also hit Republicans too. So that's why you didn't see any Republicans at all jump ship and join. The only one you can quasi-count is Justin Amash, but he left the Republican Party and considers himself an independent now. So he, a little bit like Van Drew, doesn't really count in the end. It will count here because they're now in different places from where they started. So very few people broke ranks, and you can largely look at the primary schedule and look at when people could file. Had this impeachment vote happened after the primary season was already over, perhaps you get a little bit of a different vote because people are looking at the general election. But that didn't happen. It's all before the primary season, so the maximum amount of just power that the establishment had to inflict on Democrats was at its peak. So partisanship held both subparties' lines largely held, and the primaries are what made this hard. So what's happening now, after you look past all the politics that played into all the vote counts, is that Democrats are doing what's called impeach and withhold. And this has never been attempted in U.S. history. You, This is a new theory that's being espoused by Harvard law professor Lawrence Tribe. And if you've read any of my columns for any length of amount of time or the newsletter or follow me on Twitter, you know I mock Tribe almost incessantly, almost at a ref- just as a reflex at this point, because he's one of the most consistent partisan people you will ever find, where all the, where all the people and all their positions switched. Were Donald Trump a Democrat? Tri- there's no way that Tribe would be supporting impeachment in this case. I know this because he hasn't supported impeachment in the past when involving Clinton, and he's just a reliable partisan. So his entire point here is not to come up with a correct constitutional solution to something. It's to come with a, to a partisan conclusion. He doesn't want a fair trial in the Senate. He wants a rigged trial that ensures that Donald Trump is going to be guilty no matter what happens. If he could block all Republican witnesses, he would do that as well. So the theory is, with impeachment and hold, is that the House votes to impeach Donald Trump and then, de- and then declines to send the articles that they've just voted on to the Senate for a trial. And the theory is, is that if you do this, the Senate can't then hold a trial, and you can keep these articles of impeachment that you've passed, keep them sort of hostage in order to try to negotiate what you want as the House in a Senate trial. That's the theory anyway. So he gets this from the fact that the Constitution is sort of vague on the specifics that each chamber has to deal with. For the House, it says that the House has the sole power of impeachment. For the Senate, it says the Senate has the sole power to try all impeachment charges. So the trial is solely in the power of the Senate, and the impeachment vote is solely in the power of the House. And when Republicans were asking for all these concessions during the House investigation, Democrats kept brushing them off and saying, well, we can do whatever we want. We have a majority. And because of that, and because the Constitution is vague on this point, we have the power, we can do that. 
Now, that's true, but in the process, they cost themselves a lot of political credibility with any Republican who would ever have voted for this or might have voted for this. Because Democrats took the most partisan advantage that they had in the House, they've pretty much killed any form of Republican support that they could have had on this because there are Republicans, both in the House and the Senate, who would have voted for these articles had they been done the right way. And Democrats flat refused and just said, this is it, this is our partisan process that we're going to follow, and you're either with it or you're against it. So now we're sitting in the Senate, and the revolts are reversed. The Senate can do whatever it wants in as far as a trial goes. There are no rules that they have to follow on how a trial goes. The Constitution just requires them to hold one. So whatever rules McConnell comes up with, that's the rules. Now, the Senate, like the House, does have current rules in place for impeachment. It's not the first time that impeachment has come up. And from time to time, they do update these rules to keep them current so they know what to do if this situation does arise. So there are rules in the Senate, but the Senate can change them at any time. So they're not binding. So right now, what's happened is that the House and the Senate are both on Christmas break. And they're not going to return until about January. So for now, what's happening is that the House is withholding their articles of impeachment in order to try to keep the Senate from doing anything. And the theory that Tribe and others have advanced is that by doing this, they can exert pressure on the Senate and get leverage to get them to accept certain democratic terms on a trial. Well, they don't have any, politi- any le- actual legal power to do this. The Senate has all the cards on this point. And the other interesting thing here, and I have a column that's going to cover all of this, so if you'd like to read it, make sure to look at the Conservative Institute late Monday, the problem with this is that if you look at the history, and Lawrence Tribe, is, and if he's right on this point, if you look at the actual history here, if Democrats are right, and you can withhold the articles to keep the Senate from have, holding a trial, what that means is that Donald Trump hasn't been impeached. And I know that sounds crazy, but that's part of the history here. Keith Whittington, a professor of politics, he did a whole entire history, and one of Lawrence Tribe's colleagues at Harvard, Noah Feldman, who testified before the uh, House Judiciary Committee calling for them to impeach Trump, have both written up articles talking about how if this is true and the Senate can't hold a trial, then what's happened is that Trump hasn't actually been impeached because in order for a full impeachment to happen is you have to take the articles over to the Senate and formally impeach him there to hold a trial. And there's a long history here of how for the first hundred or so years of the Republic, if there's going to be an impeachment, the House sent over articles and said this in a and gave their words to the Senate in a present tense, that they were then accusing whoever the federal officer was. They were accusing that person and impeaching them in the Senate right then and there, which meant, if you look at the history, that impeachment was something that only occurred once the vote had happened and you'd taken it to the Senate. But in the early 20th century, around 1912, the House changed its language. There's no real explanation for why they did it, but they did. And it became a past tense thing where they would go to the Senate and they would say, we have impeached this person, this federal officer, in this case, the president. We have impeached this person in the House and are here to present this to you, which implies that impeachment occurs in the House at the time of a vote. And if that's the case, then the Senate can just take up the trial whenever. 
So that's sort of the difference there. That's the, the interesting historical thing. And so if it's true that impeachment doesn't occur until you've actually gotten those articles to the House, like Tribe wants to say right now, well, that means that Donald Trump hasn't been impeached, which is crazy to think of. I don't agree with this argument, but that is the point that they're making. If you can pull this off, then that means that Donald Trump has not been technically impeached. And so he can legitimately go around to all of his various, you know, his rallies and his campaign stops and say, well, they haven't sent the articles over. So they can say that they have voted to impeach me, but they haven't actually impeached me yet because they're too chicken to take it to the Senate. And he probably has a legal point there. He's probably true. There's probably a point there that he can make. It's not entirely clear whether or not that that's the case. And frankly, there's no court that's going to ever rule on this. This is all just theory and speculation at this point because this is entirely a political process with the two branches fighting over this. So that that's a sort of interesting point here. And so that's sort of the first way the Democrats lose on this if they pu- push this theory. The other way this this fails for them is that if it's not true and Donald Trump is impeached, then transmitting the articles on over to the Senate doesn't matter at all because once the House makes that vote, it immediately moves over to the Senate and there are no rules that the Senate has to off has to follow. And so if that's the case, then Mitch McConnell and Republicans can just look at can ignore whatever Democrats are doing. They can either play along and say, Oh, well, we can't do anything because they haven't sent the articles over. Oh, woe is us. They can, we're just going to sit here and confirm more judges instead of listening to them until they send them over. So there's no political pressure on us. Why are Democrats not being the one who want to hold a trial? They can't do this forever. So that it entirely plays into Republicans' hands, and they don't want to hold a vote on this anyway. So you're, if you're going to withhold it and prevent them from voting on it, they're just going to play along with it and say, oh, well, you know, y'all have fun with that. Y'all can keep the articles for however long you want. If we don't have to hold a trial... We're not going to hold a trial. We'll just blame you for trying to obstruct justice yourself by not letting us hold a trial and figuring out whether or not the president is, in fact, guilty or not. So that's the first way Democrats lose politically. The other way is is that if Mitch McConnell just gets sick of it, he can just hold a vote and say, well, Democrats aren't wanting to actually do this as an actual impeachment process or play along, so we're just going to vote it down, as is our prerogative, because they're just playing political games with the impeachment power, which should not happen at all. And that's another way. They don't have to get the... They don't, I, in my opinion, the Senate does not have to get the actual articles in order to hold a vote. They have the sole power to hold a trial. And so once impeachment has happened, which I believe happens as soon as the House has held a vote, once that happens, the Senate can do whatever it wants to hold a trial. They can take six months if they want to, and they can take a week. There's no rules on how long the process has to be. It is entirely up to Mitch McConnell and Republicans on how that's going to happen. They have sole power. So all of this, all of this politics, all of this game playing that Pelosi and Democrats are playing, none of it works to their benefit. It's, it's if you you could potentially call it the best situation of a losing cause. If you think that the Senate acquitting Trump is the worst possible thing, if you don't want that to happen, then this is your best play to make. If you've just given up and already assumed that's going to happen, then I don't know why you're waiting because this is this is what's going to happen here. And I just see this as political gamesmanship. There's no constitutional or political theory that gives Democrats any kind of benefit here. It's just a gigantic time suck and a waste of time. Ultimately, though, I do believe 
that Pelosi will send over the articles because right now they're just making it easier for any moderates to just look at what they're doing and reject it. All the people like Susan Collins and others who are more moderates in their Republican faction in the Senate, they can look at this and just say, hey, why should I ever bother looking at the substance? Democrats have made such a mockery of this. We don't even have to take it seriously anymore. Democrats are literally making it easier on moderates by taking away any of the pressure, which is why I continue to maintain that Lawrence Tribe right now is the MVP of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. They love him. They're all cheering for this because they love it. He's making their lives easier and in the process making Democrats' lives harder because he's, they're keeping all the pressure and all the political risk. Now, they can say whatever they want and the media can say whatever they want, but reality sits another way. And so that's why I think Pelosi will eventually send the articles over. It does not make sense for her to keep the ball in her court and maintain and take the heat for all the political stupidity that Democrats are playing. So the real question is how hard does McConnell end up playing this game when Pelosi eventually sends it over? Because you got to remember, we're, if, if she sends it over as soon as they come back from break, that means the Senate is going to end up holding a trial in the middle of January. And you have to think about who some of these people are. Some of them are running for president. People like Bernie Sanders, people like Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, and others. They're all running in the Senate for president. And all of a sudden, if this trial takes place, they're going to get ripped off the campaign trail, stuck in the middle of the Senate, forced to stay quiet, and listen constantly to what's happening. Because here's what the rules are right now in the Senate, if you're going to hold a trial. Senators are not allowed to talk or do anything. In fact, the only way that they can give questions is via note card. They have to write down their questions on a little note card, pass it up to the front, and have it asked by someone else. So they just have to sit there all day long and not do anything while they've got these campaigns running in Iowa. So if you're Pete Buttigieg or you're Joe Biden, you're cheering for this trial because it's going to take all your competitors off the field and they're not going to be able to campaign just weeks before the Iowa caucuses. And if I remember correctly, the Iowa elections are held either right at the end of January or the 1st of February. I'd have to relook at the dates of that. But they have been you know, right then. And a Senate trial can take anywhere up to six weeks. So all of a sudden, all these candidates, they don't have access to Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, or South Carolina. Mitch McConnell could take them all off and basically play hardball with them and saying, if you want to go and campaign, you're going to have to help me get rid of this impeachment trial. Because that's the kind of game that's going to happen. If they, want to, if they don't want to sit in the Senate, they're going to have to help expedite the trial and end it because he's going to hold them hostage, basically. So that's going to be an interesting dynamic that could end up playing out. None of these senators wants to sit quiet. None of them wants to be in Washington, D.C. They want to be in Iowa. And you have all these people who need that short trial. So if it's going to be a short week, they're not going to mind it as much because they can complain about it. But if McConnell plays some hardball and takes them off the field, it's going to allow, make it easier for someone like Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg to take the lead because they're going to be running unopposed in Iowa. So that's that's the lay of the land as you're looking at impeachment moving forward. We'll have to wait to learn more about what's going to happen right now because everybody's out for Christmas and they're going to be back in session sometime. I think it's around January 5th, I believe is the date that I saw floated around. So that's about the time that they'll come back. And that's when you'll start hearing noise once again about impeachment and whether or not the House is going to send the articles over. 
I think Pelosi ultimately will because it's in her best interest to do that, but we'll see. Lawrence Tribe, who pitched this idea, is currently advising House Democrats on all of this. So he's the one carrying, carrying all the water for this. I think it's a dumb idea. There are a lot of other people who think it's a dumb idea, too. In fact, I don't know anyone besides Lawrence Tribe and House Democrats who think it's a smart idea. There are some people over at, at sites on the right, like the Bulwark, who also support it, but none of the logic or the legal theory behind it makes any sense at all. I mean, just absolutely no sense at all. It all benefits Republicans in the end, so if you're wanting to impeach Donald Trump, this is a really stupid idea. But, you know, Trump's going to run with it, I think. I think he's going to jump into these rallies and they're saying, well, I haven't really been impeached. Look at these Democrats. They're chicken. I, I think that's that's his natural play here. So if I were him, I would play that card all day long. That's all I've got on that, though. When we come back from the break, we'll talk about Bethel Church and then wrap up with the Trees for Troops story from NBC News. All right, we're back. And what I wanted to talk about next is my defense of Bethel Church in Redding, California. And if you've not heard of them before, they're a what I would call a more charismatic church out in Redding, California. They've done a lot of good. They've turned around their city. They have a lot of impact. Their pastor, Bill Johnson, and they have some prophets named Chris Valentin. They've put out a lot of good information that has helped a lot of Christians in a lot of cities turn around their local communities and make them far more Christ-centered. And if you just go through and look at it a lot, you see all the good that they've done. But in any event, they had a viral story that happened over their social media accounts over this past week. They had a child who is one of the members of their worship team who died. And Bethel and the people in the church asked for prayer in resurrecting this child. This was around two or three years old, I think. And this was a big ask. And it went viral because they were asking all the people in there, both in their community and as well as in their social community, to pray and pray along these lines, that the child would come back to life. And it ended up making national news because, as you might imagine, not many churches have the gumption to ask for this. And so you're not going to see this in the news because not many Christians have the faith to even remotely ask for it or to even think that this is going to be take place. And the typical crowd that exists in the Christian church came out and attacked them, calling this wrong and there's no basis for it and that they were cultish, just basically the whole nine yards. None of it's new. And while it was sort of strange to me, I, I'm going to defend it because... For one, my beliefs align pretty closely with theirs. I think a lot of what they've done is good. And this is despite what's happened in this case in that they're preparing for a memorial service for this girl because the resurrection did not come in this case, at least the last that I checked. And my beliefs track pretty close with them. I've read and listened to them on a lot of different issues, and I think they're great on a lot of ways of making the church much better than it is. And I also know... All of the arguments that people toss out against them from the people who call them either heretics or just wrong on theology, you usually hear this from the Reformed crowd and others who just call them wrong on their theology and everything that they do. And so I know all of that as well. And I, in this particular case, I looked at it and I saw the post and I didn't have a word in this case that this was God's plan for them that this was going to happen. That's usually what happens in these situations for me. I look at what people are requesting and then I turn around and ask, okay, 
God, what do you want to happen here? What needs to happen here? And what do people need to pray about as far as happening here? And I didn't have a word in particular in this case of that this was going that the girl would come back to life. I didn't have that word. I didn't really have any word in particular about it. And part of that is just I'm not close to the situation. I'm not there. But I'm more than happy to pray with him and pray along with him on these things. Jesus says that he only did what he saw his father doing. In this case, I didn't see what God was doing in this case, but I was more than happy to pray along with him in the situation because if it did happen, that would be a huge miracle that would, it would frankly, it would just change the direction of the church in that area. It would be an outpouring of power and glory to God in there that frankly needs to happen. And instead, you see all this blowback from people who are attacking them for even thinking in this manner. And it didn't happen. So is this proof that they're wrong? That's the question that everyone's asking. And I don't think so. Because they've still actually changed their community. And you have to think about what they've done here. They've so thoroughly changed people's mindsets that they're willing to look at a situation where death is and say to that, we could bring this person back to life. That's the type of faith that you're talking about here. If this had happened in any other community in America, the first thing they'd be saying was, this is awful what happened just before Christmas. I guess we're going to have to hold a funeral now. No one there in any other community would say, well, their first thought would be, we need to see if we can bring this person back to life. We need to see if this is an opportunity, not just something that's tragic. That's something that's very unique to them and that they've changed the way people think into a more Christ-centered way that focuses on the fact that Christ is real and active in the world and that miracles can, in fact, happen. That's not true in, elsewhere in America. That's not true at all. You can't see that anywhere. And we've seen what Bethel has done in other things. They've changed everything in their city. Their faith has impacted every single part of their city. They've impacted the police force by helping actually pay the salaries of policemen there and firefighters. They've had talks with commissioners and helping clean up this city and help get drugs off the street, clean it up, make it look better. They've made it into a quasi little mini tech hub, just bringing in all the people who come into their school of ministry that they have up there. And they've ended up turning into a mini Silicon Valley just with all the stuff that they're cranking out. They help them run their their big, not community center is the wrong word, but they basically have a building that they use for concerts and other things. And Bethel runs that for the city and helps put in a lot of the secular acts and a lot of Christian acts too. The city runs better because they are there and making it better every day. And because of all this, they have raised people's expectations of what can happen when Christians are actually hold an active role in their community, in their states, driving not just public policy, but driving people's faith. And so they've gotten people to think that this is actually possible. And that's a good thing. It didn't happen in this case, but it doesn't happen in every case of what you pray for. It just That's just a fact of life. Sometimes God answers, sometimes he doesn't. And we don't always know the answers to that, but that's just a fact of life. It didn't in this case, but he has answered prayers for them in so many other ways, in so many previous ways, that they don't have the answer for why it didn't happen in this case, but they do know God's moved for them in other ways. And so much of this, it's just, it, for me, when you look at the critics, I the way I look at it is that you ask yourself, where's the fruit? 
With Bethel, you can point out where these people's fruit are and how they're impacting people's lives. When I look at a lot of these people who spend all their time on the internet criticizing them and writing up these long theological pieces, I just ask, where's your fruit? What have you done to advance the kingdom other than just shooting at other Christians who are doing work? Because that's all these people are. They're like the Pharisees who walk around in the Bible and they made all of all the lives of other Jews miserable with all their pronouncements of the law and what people should and shouldn't do. Meanwhile, the people are dying spiritually. There's absolutely nothing happening. There are no prophets in the land. There's just, there's just nothing when you look around at the spiritual land that Jesus entered into outside John. There's nothing happening aside from him, and that's why he was so special to the communities that he walked into. And it reminds me, when you look about this, it's this disconnect that you see. People criticize what they don't like, and in this case, they criticize Bethel because they don't like them. It's sort of like, it's, it's this weird hypocrisy that you see. In Christians, you see all this mockery, even on the Babylon Bee, where you see people mocking things like the prosperity gospel. And there are some theological problems with that, but people mock and attack that. But then they turn around, and you see all these posts about how they're praying to God for better financial situations. They want a better job. They want to raise. They want to make more money. They want to win the lottery so they never have to deal with debt. They don't like being in debt. And so you see all this stuff where they're complaining about their lives and their finances, and yet they also attack the people who are trying to show them a better way to have better finances. It's just ridiculous and rank hypocrisy. And you see this in politics. You see this on the side when you're looking at socialism and stuff. You see some of these people who are attacking socialism really just hate richness. They don't like people who are wealthy, and so they want to use political power in order to get rid of that, in order to punish these people for being rich or wealthy. In the church, you see the same thing, but people cloak all of that same type of rhetoric in theology and say that they are holier than thou and that this ty- these types of people are bad and wrong. But, again, these are the same type of people who pray and put Facebook posts up about how they want all their life to change and they want all these great and wonderful things from God and they want to be blessed. And so really it's just this poverty mindset where people think that they, because they're not as big and wealthy that that makes them somehow better. And it's really, really old. It gets old in politics because it's just, in politics you call it the politics of envy, and in here you can just call it the religion of envy, where people are envious and so they attack things that they don't like. And I'll start taking all the criticisms that you see lobbed at Bethel seriously when those same critics start showing up with the same level of fruit that you see from them. I want to see the communities of these critics start changing. I want to see them start leading by example and become the center of the city, the hub where everything is coming in and out and people's lives are changing from top to bottom. When people start caring about how they're raking leaves in their community and how that honors God, I will then start taking seriously the criticisms of Bethel because right now you don't see it. These critics have no sway at all in their community. And I can say this because I can look at a lot of these cities and you can and you see a lot of Christians say, oh, things are just getting worse every day, they're just absolutely getting worse. And it's like, well, yeah, because you're not doing anything. You're hiding in the four walls of your church and you're saying everything's fine and great there and nobody else is changing. That's not the Great Commission. That's not what's in the Bible. You're using your religion to give you a cloak of infallibility of having to go forward when instead you should be going forward and interacting. Because there's too many people, too many Christians, who believe Jesus died and rose from the dead, but also believe in like and act like miracles don't happen at all. 
And that's not the Christian gospel, and that's not the miracle of Christmas, frankly. That's not the miracle of that. That's not what the Bible says. That's not where the church should be overall. So it's a sad situation of what happened in Bethel. I wish something else had happened, but I also don't take any of the criticisms being lobbed at them very seriously, because in reality, a lot is being lobbed by Christian Pharisees, and they are truly the worst people in the church, by far. So with that, if we come back from the break, we're going to end on a light note talking about Trees for Troops, a really cool organization and thing that is happening as we head into Christmas this week. All right, we're back real quick, and I wanted to send you out on a high note, and it's Trees for Troops. It's an organization that ensures that our soldiers who are either overseas or stationed somewhere that is away from home, it ensures that they have Christmas trees for their families and for these new houses and new communities that they're living in, and it's just a really cool story. This is from NBC News. They aired this over the weekend, and I want to share it with you guys so that you have a high point as you head into Christmas. There's good news tonight about helping our troops around the world feel loved and remembered during the holiday season. They're getting Christmas trees from strangers, a small but important symbol of the season, bringing a bit of home to those serving far away. From the mighty and majestic to the humble and hopeful. It's not bad at all, really. They're a holiday tradition. Timber a symbol of the season. Is this the one? No! But some are buying more than just one. This one. You want to get a tree for the troops? Sure. Absolutely. Families donating Christmas trees to our troops, along with notes of love and support. Thank you for protecting us. We hope you enjoy the tree. Merry Christmas, the Horkheimer family. Loaded up and shipped by truck and FedEx by flight to bases all over the world. Since 2005, Trees for Troops has partnered with tree farms across the country, sending nearly 250,000 Christmas trees to military families who can't be home for the holidays. Good tidings coast to coast, even as far away as Afghanistan, and at Anderson Air Force Base in Guam. This season, extra special for the Crisp family from Virginia, spending their first stationed on the island. Wow! Literally the first thing we got to put in our home is a Christmas tree. And to, to have something that's familiar uh, really makes it feel like a home. So can I get a Merry Christmas? Merry Christmas! Back stateside, seeing green at Camp Lejeune. 450 trees donated here from Tennessee. For the Eggenbergers from Missouri, a reason to be thankful. This Christmas, Sergeant Lucas Eggenberger has been deployed to the living room. You want to put some lights on? Sadie and Bennett helping Dad decorate. There you go. Good job. For them and our other U.S. Armed Forces, these trees are much more than just a gift. Thanks to the kindness of strangers, they're also an inspiration. Christmas says, thank you for all you do for your country. We love our many heroes such as you. Love from Memphis, Tennessee. Families across the globe united in the holiday spirit. For the Trees for Troops program, it's mission accomplished. It's been about two years now since I've had a Christmas with my family, and it really means a lot to me. Trees for Trips is a massive effort. More than 18,000 trees were delivered so far this holiday season on 78 military bases. 
All right, I wanted to send you out there on a high note. If you want to learn more about Trees for Troops, you can go to their website at treesfortroops.org. They say that they've delivered, you heard the end of the story, he said over 18,000. They're saying now on the website that they've completed their Trees for Troops for this year. So if you want to do that, make sure to look for it next year. They delivered 18,636 Christmas trees this year, real Christmas trees for military members and their families. More than 800 different real Christmas tree growers have contributed trees in the last 15 years. And over the past 15 years, with donations and stuff, they've been able to deliver nearly 250,000 real Christmas trees, which is a really cool cool story and a really cool way to give back to these communities during Christmas. So that's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute And the newsletter, which normally goes out early Friday morning, it won't be coming out this week due to Christmas. The Friday column should be coming out at the same time, but you can make sure to sign up for the newsletter and you'll get it when the next issue comes out and the first of the year. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.